New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. We're going to turn to God's Word in Psalm 23, first of all. Psalm 23, very well-known words. And my prayer is that God will drive these words into the very deepest places of our hearts this morning, and that we shall be drawn into the very deepest heart of God as a result. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then John's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 7. Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. <coughs> the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Amen. 1976, in my student days, shortly after the age of the dinosaurs, I was involved for a month in a mission in southern France, the city of Bordeaux, with Operation Mobilization. We gathered for orientation in Louvain in Belgium. We were assigned to small groups in which to travel to our different destinations. We were given a leader, a mode of transport, and a small amount of money. I remember our mode of transport vividly a battered old Volkswagen van, <clears throat> much like this one, a van that had seen much better days. Those days were long gone, several decades, possibly centuries before. Uh, along with those days that had gone, had gone the van's rear seats. Where those seats had once been, there now existed a cavernous space into which most of us were joyfully deposited by the joyful folks who were sending us off. The floor, I recall, was very hard, not itself very joy-producing. 
What the van lacked in seating was more than compensated for in terms of the excitement of the journey, which was not entirely due to the van itself. Our team leader was a cheerful, upbeat girl from New York. She had never driven in Europe before. only had the most rudimentary knowledge of European driving conditions and indeed of European traffic laws. Perhaps the most interesting moment occurred when our fearless leader attempted an illegal U-turn somewhere on the outskirts of Paris in the middle of the night. We were alerted to this creative moment by being rudely awakened from sleep, hurled from the back of the van to the front, landing in a heap of bodies just behind the driver's seat. Uh, She had had to slam on the brakes in consideration of the speedily oncoming traffic. (laughs) Nothing daunted, we continued on our way, which uh, included a pleasant six-fold circuit of the Arc de Triomphe (laughs) as we tried to exit on the correct road. We overnighted in southern France, the girls got to sleep in the van, We got to sleep on the local haystack, which we shared with the charming local French rats, les rats. (laughs) In the morning, New York girl managed to reverse the van directly over my main travel bag, spewing its contents out onto France's native soil. I arrived in Bordeaux, a person admittedly relieved to be alive, (laughs) but somewhat less adequately clothed than I had planned. And I tell you this story to emphasize something really important about our Christian journey. It is very important to travel with someone who is competent to get you to your destination. It's important to have a leader who resists the temptation to make U-turns on highways while you're asleep, who knows how to escape from large chaotic roundabouts. It's very important to have a leader who will not, under any circumstances, reverse over your baggage, which I think we have determined this week we all possess. Successful travel requires the right leader It also requires a destination worth the trouble. I make no comment here on Bordeaux. France is a wonderful country. I'm sure there are many wonderful parts of Bordeaux that I did not see. Uh, I simply repeat the general point that the aggravations of travel are more than worthwhile if the destination is worthwhile. And uh, this brings me circuitously to Psalm 23. For here we have a biblical text that's also about a journey, our journey with God. We've been reflecting, of course, this week on the theme of the love of God. God loves us in the beginning. I reminded you on Monday, God loves us all on Tuesday. On Wednesday, God loves us in our sin and our wickedness, and yesterday God loves us in the crucible of ministry. These are all wonderful truths, but there's one important question we have not yet asked or answered directly, or at least I have not. How long, how long does God's love last 
far. God loves us in the beginning. He loves us in the middle of our journey. But does God love us right to the end? Or does He become weary? Does He quit halfway through? How serious is God in this love that He has for us? And Psalm 23 helps us with these questions. It's a psalm about the character of God, the one who leads us. It's a character about the nature of the destination to which He leads us. It's a psalm about the certainty of getting there. And the psalm speaks of these two realities using two leading metaphors. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. In this psalm, we meet a God who is, first of all, a good shepherd. But we also encounter, towards the end, a God who is a generous host. And both metaphors together remind us very, very deeply, I think, that God so loves us all the way to the end. God is, first of all, a good shepherd. That's where the opening four verses go. The metaphor of a shepherd is fairly commonly deployed in the Bible, as you know. It's closely associated with God's leading of Israel in the wilderness, with Israel's return from exile in Babylon. The prophet Isaiah, for example, says, they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. (coughs) It's a wonderful image. Um, We have other images in the Psalms of God. God is a rock, for example. But these are hard-edged images. The images in Psalm 23 are far more intimate. God is a shepherd living with His flock and being everything to His flock. What does that mean? In this psalm, it means, first of all, that God makes sure, the shepherd makes sure, that the sheep eat the best food. He makes me lie down in green pastures, that is, grassy meadows, not sparsely vegetated land. Quite a bit of Palestine, as I'm sure you know, uh, does not really provide good food for sheep. It's rather (coughs) desert-like. But the Good Shepherd manages somehow to find green pastures, even so. He manages to find abundant, lush pastures, whether in the rainy season or the dry season, all the year round. It's not easy. It takes effort, but it can be done with a bit of effort, and God, we're told, does it. Why does the Good Shepherd do such a difficult thing? Because the Good Shepherd does not just want His sheep to eat as they travel through the land. He wants them to eat well. That's how much 
he cares. The average shepherd might not care. The hireling shepherd that Jesus describes in John 10, he's only in the sheep business for the money. He might well not care. So that shepherd, it's the the cash, it's not the sheep that's important. Uh, We've all met employees like that in our time, minimal effort, maximum sense of entitlement. So the hireling shepherd might well not care about the sheep. The shepherd who is just going through the motions might take a similar view. Well, they're only sheep. I'm sure they'll manage. What's all the fuss? But the good shepherd cares He makes me lie down in green pastures. He has my best interests at heart. And he wants me not only to eat well, but to drink well. He leads me beside quiet waters. Food was a challenge in ancient Palestine, but so was water. Settled existence in the promised land has always required a fair bit of ingenuity, changing the course of rivers, improving the flow of springs, uh, digging wells, rainwater from the wet months collected in huge cisterns or reservoirs for later use. (coughs) Excuse me. It wasn't easy to find water in ancient Palestine it was even more difficult to find water safe to drink. If you are a sheep, imagine, if you are a sheep looking to drink, you do not want to be sticking your head into a torrential river and find yourself 800 yards downstream with your legs in the air and somewhat dead. You don't want turbulent water if you're a sheep. You want You don't want a raging flood. You want quiet water. But a lot of the water in Palestine is turbulent, flash floods, suddenly filling the wadis with raging streams. To this day in modern Israel, even if you drive down through the Judean desert on the eastern side of Israel, you will see along the main highway there depressions in the road deliberately created to allow floodwaters to pass over the top unimpeded and not damage the highway. Turbulent waters. The good shepherd, though, leads his sheep beside quiet waters. That's how much he cares. Not just any food and drink, but the best kind. So what's the picture here? This is not a a meager provider, this shepherd. This is not an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of a shepherd. This is not someone who is grudging, petty in his relationship with us. The good shepherd loves his sheep. He pours out his blessing upon them. That's what we learn from Psalm 23. And by doing these things and in doing these things, we are told, He restores my soul. Perhaps a better translation would be, He restores my life, because in biblical thinking, the soul is not really a separate part of the human being. You will not find it 
on an x-ray floating around there somewhere in your bodily system. In biblical thinking, human beings are not a collection of bits of things, including a body, soul, and spirit. We are integrated beings into whom God has breathed His life force, and the word soul really just refers to that life force. It is the very breath of God. It is that which animates us. And so here in Psalm 23, the reference is really to the Good Shepherd keeping the sheep alive through good care. He restores my soul. He puts life back into the sheep just when it's ebbing away from a lack of food and water. We might also translate this phrase appropriately, He refreshes me. That is what the care of God achieves for the sheep who finds herself to be a member of this happy flock. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? Fundamentally, it means I shall not be in want. I shall not want. I shall lack nothing I need for the journey through life. As Moses reminds the Israelites, about their journey in the wilderness after the exodus. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. Indeed not. The good shepherd keeps the sheep alive. The good shepherd refreshes them. But more than that, the good shepherd guides the sheep. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This is not an open-ended ramble through the Palestinian countryside. The sheep are not left to the devices and desires of their own hearts. The sheep, mercifully, did not plan their own itinerary, which is just as well given the general foolishness of sheep and their famous capacity for getting lost and into danger. Sheep are not the brightest of God's creatures, you may well have noticed. They are not much endowed with common sense. I was driving in Scotland before I came here in a country road up north in the highlands, Sheep comes onto the road, lamb comes onto the road, lamb insists on suckling right there in the middle of the road with this car approaching, and I'm thinking, no, that's not a very good idea. Really, get your head up and, and have a look, would you? Uh, sheep don't have a good sense of direction either, you may have noticed. Um, I came across a story from a leading English language newspaper in Qatar, of all places, 2009, obviously a slow news day in Qatar, and uh, on the front page of this newspaper was the, uh, the headline, 400 sheep fall off cliff in Turkey. <laughs> Why? Why there was a news story in Qatar about Turkish sheep? Don't ask me. But there it was. And the story went on to describe how hundreds of sheep had followed their leader's sheep off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths while the shepherds looked on in dismay. 
400 sheep died. Another 1,100 sheep who followed them survived because they bounced, as it were. Uh, the 400 sheep gave a soft landing to the 1,100. Uh, sheep tend to follow sheep. They don't plan. They don't necessarily think much about where they're going. In Psalm 23, mercifully, the itinerary does not lie in the hands, or I guess the feet, of the sheep. The itinerary lies in the hands of the good shepherd. And this shepherd is not like those Turkish shepherds who were actually, the reason the sheep got over the cliff was they were happily eating their breakfast and not really paying attention. The good shepherd is highly attentive. The good shepherd makes sure that his sheep stay on the right kind of paths. That's really what that phrase, he guides me in paths of righteousness, means. Uh, the word righteousness, of course, has inevitably for us modern Bible readers a moral religious connotation. So it's perhaps not the best translation as applied to sheep. Sheep are neither righteous nor unrighteous, so far as I know. Uh, goats are a different matter, but sheep are simply sheep. And the point of verse 3 in this psalm is simply there are good places for sheep and there are bad places for sheep, and the good shepherd makes sure that his sheep do not stray off the right paths into dangerous places. So the good shepherd, for example, would not take his sheep along any of the main traffic arteries of Paris. Uh, the Good Shepherd would not, I believe, attempt an Ill illegal U-turn on any of those major traffic arteries of Paris. If he did, by the way, his chances of success would be better, I think, than New York girl, because shepherds at least have some experience, do they not, with U-turns. The Good Shepherd makes sure his sheep stay on the right kind of path, and it's really good to know that this is the Good Shepherd's agenda, because as you farming people know here, there's more than one reason for making sure that sheep are well looked after. My eldest son, Andrew, was on a, a mission trip to Kenya. Is that us? Somebody else. My eldest son, Andrew, was on a mission trip to Kenya a number of years ago, to the village of Kakuyuni. And while he was there, one of the villagers presented the mission team with a chicken. <clears throat> In a monumental display of poor taste, the team named this chicken Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Why did they do this? because the fate of that chicken was not to be guided anywhere. That chicken was going to be eaten, it was fed, it was provided with water, but the end of that story was not a happy one for the chicken. So there's more than one reason than making sure, for making sure that sheep are looked after. But the psalmist is convinced that God does not have any kind of hidden agenda in His providential care for us. The Good Shepherd provides for the sheep, 
not so that he can slaughter them later. The good shepherd provides for the sheep so that he can lead them onwards to even better things to come, and he guides them on the right paths to get them there. Now, does that mean that they can always avoid dangerous places? Absolutely not. Psalm 23 is not a naive psalm when it comes to human experience. If it were naive, it would be impossible to take it seriously as truthful. But Psalm 23 is not naive. It knows about darkness and danger. It knows about evil and chaos. It knows about the sheep traveling through the valley of the shadow of death. The picture here is simply of a dark ravine, the darkest valley or ravine that you can think of, a place where there may be threats in the shadows, a place where there's a constant danger of a flash flood. That phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, is just a particularly graphic and poetic way in the Hebrew of expressing a superlative. That's what it is. Holy of holies just means most holy place. King of kings, the greatest king. So what we're thinking about here is a place of deadly darkness. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it as death valley. Very dangerous place for sheep. Place of trouble and darkness and pain and suffering. A place where, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, you might well feel in your heart the sentence of death. A terrible place. It's not just about death, but it certainly includes death as part of that mix. But it's any, it's any shadowy, dark place in life. And Psalm 23 says, yes, those places exist, but here's the thing. The good shepherd does not simply look after the sheep in pleasant places. He looks after the sheep in unpleasant places as well. And intriguingly and importantly, we must notice this, it is the good shepherd who leads the sheep into these unpleasant places. Okay, this is not an accident on the journey. This is part of the itinerary. There is no way of getting to the destination with God without sometimes going through dark places. That's what Psalm 23 says. It's what the whole book of Psalms says. It's what the book of Job says. It's what the whole New Testament says. We have no way of getting to our destination with God without sometimes going through dark places. That's just the way it is. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. Anyone who tells you, and there are such people, anyone who tells you that the Christian life is a pain-free life, that the Christian life is a healthy, wealthy life with no darkness in it, anyone who tells you if you're not experiencing that, you must be in deep sin, that person, my friends, is a false prophet peddling false and pernicious ideas. That person is a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
the journey we are on to the city of God, must necessarily take us through dark places. But here is the thing, and it's a very, very wonderful thing. The good shepherd walks through those places with us. You are with me, says the song. The good shepherd does not send us ahead through the dark valley and then skip around by another way. Good shepherd does not say to the sheep, I'm just off to the pub for a drink. See you later. Good luck with the lions and the bears, by the way. That's not the good shepherd's way. The good shepherd does not leave us in dark places. He walks with us in dark places. The Apostle Paul again, 2 Corinthians again, God comforts us in all of our troubles. God comforts us in our troubles. He doesn't necessarily take them away, but He is found in the very midst of them, right at the very heart of them, because the Good Shepherd is committed to His guiding task. We're told this as well in the psalm. He is bound by name to the flock. His reputation, his good name as a shepherd is bound up with his success in this task. He guides me in the right paths for his name's sake. It's a matter of honor that God will get us safely to the journey as he has, the end of the journey as he has promised. What a what a wonderful companion for our journey. And therefore, says uh, David in the psalm, therefore, I will fear no evil. You'll notice he doesn't say there is no such thing as evil or evil won't affect me. What he says is evil is real and evil is unavoidable actually, but we need not fear it because the shepherd is with us, and the shepherd is remarkably well-armed. <clears throat> he has a rod. That's a really bad translation, by the way. What do you think of when you, in your mind, what's it? Is it a fishing rod? It's not going to be very helpful. Is it a stair rod? No, 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 no. This rod is actually a substantial mighty cudgel worn at the belt by the shepherd and used for fighting off all the bears and wolves and lions and all the rest of it. It's a huge offensive weapon. It is, in your vernacular, a shillelagh. <clears throat> That's what it is. The good shepherd has formidable weaponry. He also has a staff used for keeping the sheep in line, you know, making sure they don't stray off. So the point is this, you see, that the shepherd is well able to get the sheep to the end of the journey. The shepherd is perfectly able to do it. The shepherd is absolutely willing to do it. And if the shepherd is willing to do it and able to do it, of course, this is the perfect companion for our journey. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. 
And so the 23rd Psalm teaches us that God is the one who provides us with all that we need, including his own companionship, and most importantly, his own companionship with us. What about, what about the end of the journey? Now we're into verses 5 and 6. And here, the imagery changes. Now it is no longer God the shepherd. Now we are reading about God the generous host. The, the pilgrim has moved on on the journey. The pilgrim has arrived at the end of his journey. And who does he meet there? He meets a wonderful, generous risk-taking host, a host who welcomes the pilgrim in, even though he is not highly regarded by other people. In fact, he is hated by many of those who see what is uh, happening. But nonetheless, God welcomes him in any way in the very presence of his enemies. <clears throat> it's a very warm welcome. It's not just a rather pathetic little handshake, you know. It's not even a, quite a substantial hug. This is a very warm welcome indeed, and it is symbolized by the anointing with oil, olive oil, highly valued in ancient Israel. It often appears as a symbol of great wealth or status, a symbol of blessing, that's why olive oil is used to anoint kings and priests, and that is why it is used to anoint an honored and especially welcome guest. You anoint my head with oil, says the psalmist to God. The pilgrim finds a warm welcome in the house of God at the end of his journey, and of course, he also encounters a wonderful banquet. God prepares a table. God sets out a feast before him. And it's an abundant feast. His cup brims to overflowing with wine. Wine was another luxury item in ancient Palestine. It's often associated with olive oil. Lots of wine at this banquet, a truly festive occasion the pilgrim is despised in the world outside, but inside the house of God, he is honored and welcomed. And it's not grudging hospitality. It's not mean-spirited hospitality. It is extravagant hospitality. It's not, a, it's not in the least bit like those jokes you still hear about getting to heaven. You know these jokes? They usually involve St. Peter and you show up at the pearly gates, and they're always closed. Have you noticed that? They're always closed. And the point is to get past St. Peter somehow. St. Peter's a grouchy guy with a book normally, and he's trying to find reasons for sending you away. There's a closed gate. There's a gatekeeper. There's a test of some kind. So now most of us are freaking out because we remember school. This is not a good scenario. And maybe if you pass the test, you'll be allowed in. 
Well, that's not how it is at all in the Bible. Here's how it is. The city gate is open. There's not a bureaucrat or a clipboard in sight. There's not even an apostle in sight. They're long gone. They're fishing somewhere up in the mountains somewhere. They've all moved on further up and further in. And the road on which you find yourself leads through the open gate to a restaurant. And the door to the restaurant is also open. And you are greeted warmly there. Good evening, madam. Do allow me to take your coat. Would you like a starter? And while you're waiting, by the way, here is an utterly humongously large goblet of wine. That's the end of the journey in Psalm 23. It's not an exam. It's a banquet. Perhaps we had feared a Colonel Sanders chicken roast with ourselves as the main course. But what we find is a banquet, and this is what life with God is like. It's about generous provision, it's about guidance, it's about safety even in dark places, and in the end, it's about an extravagant feast that Jesus tells us people come to from east and west and north and south, and some very unexpected people end up being there. And it's a recurrent, extravagant, endless feast. That's really what verse 6 suggests. You can translate this in two ways. Either the pilgrim will return again and again throughout his life to be in God's presence, or he will one day get there and just stay. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Both things are true, I think. This is not a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. Some of us are wired, or we are trained in our families maybe, to expect that this is what life will prove to be, a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. Some of us have come to believe for all sorts of reasons, to do with our families, our culture, even our religion, we've come to believe that life can only be temporary joys before the long-term reappearance of the bad. Puddle-glum spirituality, you remember from the other day. It's like that old Scottish fisherman, and the tourist goes up to him, and he looks up at the sky, and he says to the fisherman, it's a wonderful day, is it not? Blue skies and sun, it's a fantastic day. And the fisherman looks up from his nets, and he says, I, he says, we'll pay for this. I think Northern Ireland's very different, do you? I think there's a lot of similarities. But here's what Psalm 23 says about God. Not a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. Look at this. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, all the way through this life, even when it's marked by pain and suffering and darkness, and into everlasting life to come, God will not turn his back on his friends. He will always show them goodness because God is good. He will always show them steadfast love because God is love. And these things will follow us. Too weak 
Too weak a translation. They won't just follow us. The Hebrew verb here is used of animals pursuing their prey. Surely goodness and steadfast love will hunt me down. Surely goodness and steadfast love will breathe down my neck. Surely goodness and steadfast love will remain forever poised just around my jugular vein. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, of course you will. Of course you will. My goodness. I grew up wondering as a kid why I'd want to go to heaven. It seemed so boring. People used to describe it to me, and I would cringe. I said, no, I don't want to go. I like it here. You know, it's just because nobody had given me a picture of this. The love of God. Confidence that God wants the best for us. That God is ever present with us as a guide. Confidence that even in darkness and pain, God is walking through us, uh, through the valley with us. Sometimes we are not so confident, I think, of God's provision and guidance, particularly in the darkness. We're not quite so sure that goodness and love are pursuing us closely. Perhaps our tendency is to think that goodness and love, if they're following at all, are only doing so somewhat reluctantly back there, and we're rather nervously looking back the whole time to check whether they have dodged behind a large rock for a quick cigarette and we're going to lose them. But the psalmist encourages us that God is good all the time. God is a good shepherd and God is a good host. It's no wonder that David wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why would you not want to dwell in a place where you are loved and honored and cared for and provided for, where there's a person chasing you eternally with grace and love? Why would we not want to dwell in that house with that person forever? God loves each one of us to the end. And of course, we've largely been dealing with Old Testament texts this week. But it's come out in many, many ways that, of course, all of these threads are part of the same tapestry that turns out when it's all woven together to have the figure of Jesus right at the center. God loved us in the beginning. The Word was there in the beginning. The Word became flesh. God loved us in the beginning, and really Jesus is there from the beginning, and it's Father, Son, and Spirit loving us from the beginning. And on Tuesday, I said, God loves everyone, and we talked about Abraham, and Ben spoke so powerfully last night about John chapter 3. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, and whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever believes, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, no difference, says the Apostle Paul, between Jew and Gentile. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved in Judea and in Samaria. The covenant with Abraham has now come to be a reality. And on Wednesday, we thought about 
God who loves us even in the midst of our sins. We thought about Jacob, the rat bag of God. And here is Jesus, the friend of sinners, standing with them at the foot of the ladder from heaven to earth, just as God stands beside Jacob at Bethel. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, just as that ram was substituted for Isaac in Genesis 22. Here is Jesus, our Savior, as Paul says to Timothy, God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And yesterday morning, Elijah and God's great love for us in the crucible of ministry. And here is Jesus gently and patiently dealing with his frail and sinful apostles, walking with them in their fear and their obtuseness, forgiving their sins and nourishing their souls. And this morning, this psalm about the good shepherd, and here is Jesus standing and looking at Israel and having compassion upon them because they are sheep without a shepherd, Jesus who tells his disciples to go and preach to these lost sheep, Jesus who tells a story about a lost sheep, just in case you haven't got it yet, to explain his mission, and Jesus who says, I am actually, folks, I am the good shepherd. And here in this psalm, the great banquet and the host And here is Jesus associating with sinners, not caring what the enemies thought, eating and drinking with them in full sight of everybody else, and speaking of a great banquet at the end of time, to which everyone from the east and the west come. And here is Jesus telling the story of a prodigal son, and what happens in that story after he comes back? There's a banquet. Do you remember? And amazingly, in Luke's gospel, the parable of the prodigal son closely follows after the parable of the lost sheep. Luke saw the connection. I think he was reading Psalm 23 when he put Luke chapter 15 together. Jesus the good shepherd, Jesus the generous host. And then that amazing paradox in Revelation chapter 7, the paradox of the Lamb of God who is also the shepherd ensuring that his people never again hunger or thirst. God so loves the world in the beginning, in the middle, all the way to the end, and that love lasts beyond the far horizon of being itself. It lasts as long as you can conceive of, and then it lasts a lot longer than that. It is long and it is broad, and it is deep, and it embraces everything within it. And our Lord Jesus Christ displays it in all His fullness and its fullness. And so we come to the end of these Bible readings with some very famous words from the Apostle Paul. They've been quoted before this week, but I have to quote them again. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God also interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. 
as it is written, we face death all the day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And here, take this into your soul. I am convinced, says Paul, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be, be convinced, brothers and sisters, that this is true. Be convinced. God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord lasts all the way to the end. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.